Well, it's good to see everyone. Uh, can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the, the epistle of uh, 1 Peter chapter 4? And this evening we want to pick it up, 1 Peter 4 verse 12, where Peter said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Now, as we said when we first started uh, 1 Peter, Peter probably wrote this epistle around A.D. 63, and his second epistle sometime in 64 A.D. And if the date of that writing is uh, correct for his first epistle, uh, A.D. 63, uh, then I'm wondering if Peter's admonition here uh, concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, if it's not prophetic. You see, in uh, 64 A.D., uh, Emperor Nero is believed to have um, been responsible for setting Rome on fire and then eventually blaming the Christians for it. I pulled this out of one uh, author historian uh, who comments on this. He said, and I quote, For nine days during the summer of A.D. 64, a huge fire raged in the city of Rome. The flames spread rapidly through the city's narrow streets and the many tightly bunched wooden tenements ordinarily crowded with residents. Because of his well-known desire to refurbish Rome by whatever means, the populace believed Emperor Nero was responsible for starting the blaze. As the fire destroyed most of the city's districts, he watched gleefully from the Tower of Messinus. Roman troops prevented people from extinguishing the fire and even started new fires. The disaster thoroughly demoralized the Romans because many lost nearly all their earthly goods and found their civic pride scorched as well. With public uh, resentment toward him at a high level, Nero diverted the focus away from himself and made the Christian community the scapegoat for the fire. Nero's ploy was a clever one because Christians in the Roman Empire were, were already uh, unjust targets of much hatred and slander. Unbelievers falsely reported that Christians consumed human flesh and blood during the Lord's Supper and that the holy kiss, which we are admonished to greet each other with in Scripture, was actually a sign of uncontrolled lust. These were lies that uh, unbeliever Romans and all were circulating about Christians. In addition, the Romans viewed Christianity as a sect of Judaism. With the increasing anti-Semitism of those days, the populace easily adopted an anti-Christian attitude as well. Following the burning of Rome, Nero capitalized on that anti-Christian sentiment and punished the Christians by using them as human torches to light his garden parties, by allowing them to be, allowing them to be sewn inside animal skins to be devoured by predatory animals, by crucifying them, and by subjecting them to other heinous, unjust tortures. The Apostle Peter likely wrote this letter just before Nero's persecution began. Peter's major reoccurring theme is how his readers should respond to unjust suffering. Today, hostility toward Christians who speak out against the culture's sins and in defense of the exclusivity of the gospel is on the rise. Therefore, to endure the present hostility, as well as what might come in the future, believers need to heed this passage's instructions on enduring severe trials. End quote. Now, in modern Christian culture in America, most Christians tend to look upon persecutions, you know, for their faith uh, as a strange thing, an abnormal thing. 
I mean, uh, most persecution comes in the form of verbal persecution. And even that is looked upon by most Christians as odd and, uh, you know, and uh, abnormal. And yet, in the first century A.D., it was not only considered normal. Uh, it was actually seen as odd if Christians weren't persecuted for their faith. In other words, they weren't living as lights in the world. Uh, they were compromising. Because if they're really living for the Lord the way they were required to, then the world would have hated them and persecuted them. Now, we know that Peter had on his mind, as he wrote this, uh, the suffering that Christians would go through, and he wanted to encourage Christians to handle them in the right way. We know this because the words suffer, suffered, and suffering are used a total of 21 times in this epistle. Now, apparently Peter was a bit of a pessimist, a downer kind of a fellow, you know, gloomy guy. Uh, he probably should have gone out to his local Christian bookstore and picked up the book, Your Best Life Now. Started to make some positive confessions. Uh, you know, that's today's Christianity. That's not Peter, not the first century Christianity that he knew. Actually, Peter was following the teaching of his master when he wrote these things. Jesus who told his disciples many years earlier, John 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that's why Peter earlier said in this very epistle, chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And now at the end of his epistle, he reminds us again by saying, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. It kind of reminds me how James opened up his epistle. Remember James we studied James in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where James said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Right up front, James presents, I believe, the difference between spiritual and carnal believers. It all comes down, really, to how they see trials and how they receive trials. Carnal Christians look at life from Earth's perspective, pretty much and view their Christianity as a vehicle for God to bless them. You hear it all over the place on radio, uh, Christian TV. This is a theme that is, is preached all the time. And uh, for these people, God exists to make them happy and to bless them with all kinds of material treasures. They're all about laying up for themselves treasures on the earth. In contrast, though, mature, spirit-filled Christians see life from an eternal perspective and view their Christian life as a way to lay up treasures not on the earth, but is a way to lay up treasures in heaven by, by how? By taking up their cross, denying themselves, and living for the glory of God while on this earth. The first group tends to see trials as carnal Christians, as a satanic plot to destroy their earthly happiness. And therefore, and you hear this all the time too, they believe that when trials come, well, it's the devil, and the devil needs to be rebuked in the name of Christ because he's trying to take away my blessings, you know? trying to take away all that God wants to give to me. And uh, so, yeah, I need to rebuke him so that the blessings will start flowing again. Whereas the second group, uh, spiritual Christians, 
see trials as being necessary for this is where Peter is coming from by the way we're actually kind of quoting James a little bit but this is where Peter is also coming from Uh, he's talking to a group of Christians that he is assuming are spirit-filled mature believers this group sees trials as necessary for growth and spiritual development they see trials as part of God's plan to better equip them to serve their Lord different mindsets at work there Different mindsets lead to different approaches to Christianity. One group is carnal, uh, living for this life, uh, all in the name of God. The other group, well, is spiritually minded, setting their minds on things above, not on things of the earth, and uh, looking right now to serve the Lord, even suffering and dying for his name's sake, because they're waiting uh, a home in heaven and heavenly rewards. And so with that in mind, guys, the rest of 1 Peter 4 contains exhortations and explanations concerning really suffering for jesus sake and so again one last time let me read verses 12 and 13 again keying in on the last part of verse 13 peter says look don't don't think it's strange when you're going through these fiery trials okay this is not a strange thing this is part of what it means to be a christian you're going to go through trials verse 13 but rejoice when that happens to the extent that you partake of christ's sufferings listen that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, in general, in general, when the rapture happens, it's going to be an incredibly joyous occasion for us, most of us who are Christians. Not only because the Lord will have evacuated us off of the earth before his judgment is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world, sure. That's why it's called the blessed hope in the New Testament. Because the Lord is going to come for his church and evacuate us before he pours his judgments out upon this world. Revelation 6 through 19. We don't have to be punished with the wicked. We've accepted Christ. Our sins are paid for. Therefore, God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. He's coming for his church. And it's going to happen so fast, a twinkle of an eye. One minute you're going to be maybe here in church listening to this goofball. The next minute you're going to be in the air. Uh, with your glorified body looking at the face of Jesus for the first time. I mean, can you imagine that? Think about that. for Let that kind of soak in, right? At that instant that you're here one second, and then the next instant you're in the air, glorified body, whatever sicknesses you are dealing with or infirmities or handicaps, it's all gone. You'll never experience anything like that, or the pain, heartaches, uh, infirmities, and so on. All of that will be over in an instant, and all that will be before us is an eternity of endless joy. Now, that's how you have to handle persecution. As Paul said, you don't look at the things which are seen, you keep your eyes on the things which are unseen. Because the stuff that is seen is temporary, passing away. But the stuff that is unseen, heavenly things, that's eternal. So the way you, 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 and we've talked about this, the way you deal with uh, difficulties, hardships, infirmities persecution is to keep your eyes on jesus and i just love i just think about revelation 21 verse 4 uh, when he comes at that time for us who are believers god's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes the bible says there shall be no more death nor sorrow nor crying there shall be no more pain the former things have passed once and for all away wow guys however Remember I said most Christians are going to be excited, joyful when he comes. But not every Christian. That doesn't mean they're not going to heaven. They're just not going to be as happy to see the Lord 
as others will be to see him. And why is that? Because many are not living for him. Now, I believe, of course, we are saved by grace. So, you know, a carnal Christian is saved by grace just like a spiritual, uh, deeply devout, spirit-filled Christian is saved by grace. Which means when the Lord comes in the rapture, he's going to take all his people off. The spiritually minded, the carnally minded. Now, the spiritually minded who are spirit-filled, been living for him, taken up the cross and so on, we're going to be ecstatic. We're going to be rejoicing, right? Those who live carnal lives or who are living a carnal life at that moment, they're going to be taken in the rapture. But as John said in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 28, they're going to be ashamed at his appearing. Again, it doesn't mean they're not going to heaven, okay? Part of the reason they're going to be ashamed because Revelation tells us the Lord is coming quickly and his reward is with him. And of course, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about uh, receiving rewards once you've been taken to heaven in the rapture. And there's a lot of Christians, because of the carnal way they're living, are not going to have too many uh, rewards to uh, enjoy. Uh, they're still saved, again, but they're going to be ashamed of his appearing because they really weren't living for him. It was a lot of carnality, a lot of selfishness, you know. They will rejoice in knowing that they're saved and not in rejoicing that they bless the heart of God. Now, the idea that Peter is expressing in verse 13, guys, when he said that as Christians, we should rejoice to the extent that we partake of Christ's suffering. What Peter was talking about is if you're being persecuted for the name of Christ, I believe what he is saying here is that, well, one good thing about the suffering is you know you're on the right team. You know you belong to Jesus, okay? And in fact, as we just said earlier, Christians who are suffering no persecution, now I, I want to be careful here because none of us are as vocal even as we should be or as, uh, or as outgoing as we should be. I don't want to lay a guilt trip on, uh, on, on people. I mean, I know good, there's a lot of wonderful Christians who love the Lord who are very low-key in their faith, all right? Uh, but they love the Lord and so on, and that's fine. But as time goes on and this, our country becomes more and more secular and more and more anti-Christian, well... You know, it's going to, somebody once said, if Christianity became a capital offense, could they find enough evidence to convict you? And that's what we have to think about. Right now, it doesn't really cost us too much to be Christians. That's changing. The time may come, and it may come in the near future, we don't know. When being a Christian is not going to just be, you know, something where people leave you alone, think you're nuts, they're going to actively be persecuting you verbally and possibly even physically. And Peter's whole message, his whole epistle, especially his last part, fits into that very idea. So keep in mind as we go through this. But um, again, our Lord Jesus Christ, before he went to the cross, taught us this very thing. He said in John 15, verses 20 and 21, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, my disciples, also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. They're unbelievers. Author and commentator William MacDonald said along these lines, and I quote, We have no right to expect better treatment from the world than our Savior received. 
Remember that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. It is especially true that those who take a forthright stand for Christ become the object, end quote. So in 1 Peter 4, verse 14, we read, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Let's turn to Luke chapter 6 for a moment, and let's read the words of Jesus himself along this line. And I think that Peter had in mind the words of Christ when he wrote this in 1 Peter 4, verse 14. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6, starting with verse 22. He said, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Wow. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets, the prophets of God, the good godly prophets. So, <laughs> you know, you know either a person, I hate to put it this way, let me just say this, all right? It takes a spirit-filled Christian who is really living for eternity to react this way when persecuted. It's one thing to endure it quietly. It's another thing to go out and jump up for joy. And Now, what I was going to say is doing that, some people may think you're a little nuts, but, but we know that you know when you really are walking in the Spirit and you're so full of Jesus that uh, when people reproach you and revile you and say evil things about you like they did to the prophets of God in the Old Testament, well, hey, Jesus said rejoice. Jump for joy because your reward is great in heaven. You are doing something right because the world hates you. And if the world loved you, you would, then you're of the world. But the world, if the world hates you and tries to persecute you, you belong to me. That's obvious. Well, okay, 1 Peter 4, verse 15. Peter said, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Now, of course, he could have gone on and on and on. But he chose these particular sins just to mention, okay? In the Christian life, there are basically two kinds of sufferings we can experience. Suffering for righteousness' sake, and then number two, suffering for unrighteousness' sake. You know, we are living at a time where people in our society have become so warped in their thinking. I mean this. So warped in their thinking that when they do evil and get caught... They make themselves the victim, or even worse, they claim they're being persecuted for doing what's right. Several years ago, I was watching a, a, news, a news program, and uh, apparently this uh, older, I was going to say older gentleman, older sick man, had captured a young woman several years earlier, and he had taken her down into his basement where he made like this little dungeon where she was chained and uh, kept there, and every day he would rape her. This went on for years, and uh, what she finally did was she made it seem like she had accepted it, and she was actually for him, and you know, he had this nice relationship with him now. Just, you know, and so he kind of let his guard down, and she escaped. She escaped. And the police were notified immediately, and they came and arrested this guy. And I saw him arraigned before a judge, 
And he actually said to the judge, well, judge, I'm the victim here. Now, they never let him speak as to why he felt he was the victim. I'm not even sure he said why. He just felt he was the victim. Amazing. Just today, I was reading an online article. The uh, title caught my eye, but I'll just read a part of it because it goes along these lines. Uh, it's, it goes like this, uh, and I quote, a CNN contributor who also writes for a Pakistani newspaper says that people who criticize Muslims and their political agenda in the West are participating in domestic terrorism. It is Islamists who sometimes commit acts of terror who are the real victims, so suggested uh, Rafia Zakaria uh, in a CNN forum on the recent attack by social media platforms on Alex Jones and, the, and his InfoWars websites. Alex Jones, whatever you think of him, is very much against Islam, and so he, he routinely will attack them for what they do. And she says, well, no, he, he's the one committing uh, acts of terror against Islam. Okay, the writer of the article says, in Zakaria's world, those opposing Islamic terrorism and mass Islamic immigration to the West should be considered terrorists, while Islamists carrying out actual terrorism in the West should be considered victims, end quote. This is the world we're living in, a world where evil is uh, called good many times and good is called evil. Now, you can read Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, because Isaiah, uh, God speaking, says that when a culture becomes so perverted, when there is a moral inversion, that's what happens when cultures become progressively more immoral, they begin to justify the immorality. They begin to justify evil, and finally they come to a point where they call evil good and good evil. And we're seeing that in our country today. Now, Peter admonishes us that if we suffer, well, we are to suffer for doing good, not for doing evil. And then he lists a few sins that, you know, must never characterize a child of God. Uh, he or she must never be found guilty for being a murderer or a thief. Mentions those two right off the bat. Now, in the ancient world, these were both serious crimes. We would think of murder, of course, as a serious crime. And that brought the death penalty. Often, though, from what I've been able to read, often uh, to be caught as a thief, you were also executed. They considered a theft back then much more seriously than we do today in many respects. Why? Well, if a man stole another man's ox, he couldn't plow his field, plant his seed, and feed his family. Or if he stole another man's donkey, we'll say. He couldn't bring his cart to market and sell his wares, and thus his family would starve. See, a lot of times what was being stolen was directly uh, connected to the family's well-being. And so in that regard, they took it very seriously. And if a person was uh, caught stealing something like that or stealing your crops, you were executed. So, of course, Peter has that mindset. He's living at that time. And he's talking about, look, as a Christian, don't ever be a murderer. Don't ever be a thief. Those are serious crimes. And look, if you are guilty of those things, you have no right to claim you're being unjustly treated if you're convicted and sentenced. Then Peter adds that a Christian must never be an evildoer. And uh, in the Greek, this is a, uh, a broad uh, and more general term uh, encompassing, you know, all, all crimes really, uh, all lawlessness, uh, of course, especially uh, any 
crime that was against the laws of God. But uh, again, he's talking about, in, in general, we are not to be people who do evil uh, in any way, shape, or form. I mean, this takes us back to something he said earlier in his epistle, chapter 2, starting with verse 13. I'll just read it out of the NLT, uh, second edition. He said, For the Lord's sake, respect all human authority, whether the king is head of state or the officials as he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone, love your Christian brothers and sisters, fear God, and respect the king. And it just gets into the whole idea, and we studied this in detail in chapter 2, where Peter says as Christians, we are to be good citizens. We are to be good citizens. And that goes right along with what he's just said. If you're going to be a good citizen, of course, you don't murder, you don't steal from others, uh, you don't do any evil in general, all right? So you, 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 you let your light shine. Now, you're going to get persecuted for being a Christian. That's a given. But if you're persecuted, make sure you're persecuted for doing what's right and people are lying about you instead of doing persecuted for doing what's wrong. Okay? But then he kind of throws us a curveball. These first three examples of sin are obviously things we as children of God know are evil and must stay away from. But then he kind of, kind of throws us a curveball in that alongside these very serious sins, he had something that most Christians today would consider, I don't know, kind of a minor transgression, certainly not on the level of something like murder. He tells us that Christians, as Christians, we must not be busybodies in other people's matters. The NASB translates this as, we must not be troublesome meddlers. Troublesome meddlers. And again, guys, it seems that this is a relatively small sin when compared with the others that Peter mentions, until you realize, listen now, until you realize more lives have been damaged, more reputations have been destroyed, and more families and churches have been torn apart, listen, by gossips and meddling troublemakers than ever a murder or a theft has ever done. See, what did the writer to the uh, Proverbs say? It's the little fox. I think it was Song of Solomon. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. What does that mean? I think what the writer is saying is it's the little sins that fly under our moral radar oftentimes that Satan uses most effectively. No, they're not the giant sins, okay, that would wipe somebody out immediately. It's the small sins and it's death by a thousand cuts kind of thing because, you know, it's, it's the gossip and the slander and the backbiting and, you know, the busybody and, and meddling in other people's affairs. This is what has destroyed many a marriage, many a church, uh, many a family. It, it's just something to keep in mind. This is why Paul admonished believers. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, he said, Look, this is my admonition to you as Christians that you aspire to lead a quiet life, and this is great, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Very important. One pastor expanded the application of what Peter said 
when he stated, I'm quoting him, Christians are never to be troublemakers or agitators in society or in their place of work. They may confront the sins in the lives of other believers, help administer church discipline, challenge unbelievers with the gospel, and exhort fellow saints to greater levels of godliness. But regarding others' private matters that do not concern them, believers should never intrude inappropriately. More specifically, Peter was referring to political activism and civil agitation, disruptive or illegal activity that interferes with the smooth functioning of society and government. Such activity would compel the authorities to mete out punishments, or anything that would bring down the, the law on you, okay, I should stay away from. The author goes on, it is wrong for believers to view that punishment as persecution for their faith. If they step outside the faith and bring trouble, hostility, resentment, or persecution on themselves, they have no more right to expect the Holy Spirit to relieve them of the consequences than if they were murderers. Then the pastor added a personal anecdote. He said, I remember a conversation I once had with a Russian pastor who had suffered greatly under Soviet communism. I asked if he or his fellow Christians ever rebelled against that form of government. He replied that it was all their convictions that if they were ever resented and persecuted by the secular authorities, it would only be for the gospel's sake. The Russian church actually grew strong in that environment, end quote. Something to think about. If persecution was to come to our country and it became illegal to be a follower of Christ, uh, and the church was persecuted, we'll say, the tendency among many American Christians is to mobilize and organize protests and maybe civil disobedience because we have our rights, blah, blah, blah. We're very big on our rights as Americans. And I'm thankful for our rights. But if someday our rights were taken away, I believe the Bible teaches us not to retaliate, not to give evil for evil, but to keep following Jesus, to keep praying for our uh, enemies, and to be as Jesus was when he was falsely accused. Remember how what Peter said in, second cha uh, in the second chapter of this epistle? He said when Jesus was falsely accused, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He didn't uh, accuse his, his, his enemies. He just quietly took the persecution and committed everything to his father. And so that's, again, not something a carnal Christian is going to be able to do or want to do. But a spirit-filled, mature Christian, this is how we are to handle this kind of thing if it ever becomes a reality in our country. Well, 1 Peter 4, verse 15. Again, he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. As most of you already know, the early church didn't refer to themselves as Christians initially. In those early days, they referred to one another as brethren, saints, and even the people of the way. That's interesting. When we first got saved, uh, the Living Bible had just come out. And we were dealing with a lot of young people and witnessing to them and all. And they had come out with a soft cover version of the, uh, of the Living Translation. And on the front, it just had the words, the way. And of course, they took it from uh, Acts, where, uh, you know, it, it talks about Christians who were people of the way, right? 
speaking of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. We know that, right? And so we'd buy those things by the gross, okay, uh, and pass them on everywhere. And we had a little discipleship or a little study group in our uh, my aunt's house, where our church actually started, her living room. And, uh, you know, everyone had a copy of the way. Well, right around, you know how the devil works, right around that time, a cult called the Way International began to get some notoriety. And I even had a few news stories done about them. And so some of the ladies who had just started coming to our group saw the news report and were like, oh, that's what we were involved in, you know, because it showed people sitting in living rooms studying the Bible, you know, Way International cult. And so they began to, you know, so you got to be careful. But, uh, but, but early Christians were, were often referred to as uh, the Way. Now, Interestingly and ironically, the term Christian was originally a derogatory term that was used by the enemies of Christ to denote his followers. They called them Christ-anians, Christ-anians, which meant Christ followers. Today we would say Jesus people. However, <laughs> what the enemy tried to use as a derogatory term, the Christians thought Christ-anians. Christians, I, I kind of like that. So they co-opted it. And we read in Acts 11.26, they first called themselves Christians in Antioch of Syria, the church up there. That was the home church of Paul and Barnabas. So, um, you know, they liked it, even though the enemies meant evil. They said, hey, I kind of like that. We're going to call ourselves Christians, all right? Back to 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Peter said, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Now, this is an interesting, if not somewhat confusing statement by Peter. Let's try to break it down and to see if we can't clarify any confusion surrounding it. First of all, Peter says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. The word time is kairos in the Greek, and uh, it's not a Greek word uh, that means time in the sense of seconds and minutes and hours. This Greek word carries with it the idea of an occasion, an opportunity, or the season for something to take place. Paul uses that very word in Ephesians 5, 15 uh, and 16, verse 16 primarily, he says, uh, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And in that regard, he's saying, using every opportunity, every occasion to be used by the Lord, do it. Okay? Do it. So Peter is saying that this is the time. Now he's talking about a specific time, kairos. And I believe he's talking about a, a season, if you will. This is uh, the season for God's judgment to begin. And he says, at the house of God first. At the house of God first. The Greek word for judgment is krima, and uh, can refer to a punitive judgment as in a court of law kind of a thing. But the word could also mean a judgment connected to a reward or to an award as when an athlete stands before the judgment seat at the Olympics and receives his or her award or prize. The house of God is a term used for all those who belong to the family of God. In other words, believers in Christ or the church. Now understand, 
And when Peter says the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, listen to me now, he's not, he's not saying that some Christians will someday be judged and sent to hell for sins they might still be wrestling with in their walk when they died or when the rapture happened. I believe the period of time Peter is referring to is the church age. That time from Pentecost when the church began to the rapture when the church age officially comes to an end. Remember now, remember when you're studying the Bible, everything has a context. And I can't underscore that enough. Everything has a context. Fight the urge to you know race through devotions and open your Bible and look down at a verse and read it and want to quickly pull it out of the page and apply it to your life without looking at the context. Okay? Remember that Peter's statement about judgment was spoken in the context of the sufferings of believers at the hands of unbelievers. Suffering which, which he referred to as fiery trials in verse 12. Look, during the church age, this age, we're in the church age right now, the church is undergoing judgment by unbelievers in the world. Not so much in America, but in many parts of the world, Christians are being persecuted and killed for their faith driven from their homes and so on and i believe peter because he was talking about the church age he was in it we're still in it all right but he is saying right now this is the season this is the time for judgment to be done against us from unbelievers in the world believers are experiencing their sufferings now just as jesus did when he was on the earth i think one author really nailed it when he said and i quote right now God uses suffering as a judgment in a positive, purifying sense for Christians, the house of God. Now is our time of fiery trial. The ungodly will have their fire later. The fire we endure now purifies us. The fire the ungodly will endure will punish them. Yet we always remember that there is never any punishment from God for us in our sufferings, God, never puni God is never punishing us when he allows us to suffer for our faith, all right? Only purifying us. Purification is the idea. For the Christian, the issue of punishment was settled once and for all at the cross, where Jesus endured all the punishment the Christian could ever face from God, end quote. So understand that, Okay. In fact, we know, and I'll just give you a couple of scriptures. Uh, John's Gospel 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore, Paul said, there is now no condemnation no judgment to those who are in christ jesus now look christians do suffer some of the same things that ungodly people suffer i mean we're not immune there are a lot of things that we suffer that uh, again unbelievers suffer sickness and, and other things and yet as one author said the purpose of god is different and the effect is different as someone has said the same fire that consumes straw will purify gold, end quote. And so, you know what? There are trials that unbelievers go through, but, um, you know, it doesn't strengthen their faith. They have none. It just burns up whatever, you know, I mean, 
it, it just wipes them out emotionally, maybe financially, and it just it, it breaks them down and, and, and makes them less strong. When we as Christians go through suffering, sometimes it's the same kind of basic stuff, uh, trials, tribulations, we face adversity, health issues, uh, money problems, whatever it might be, but it draws us closer to God. And the, and the trial has a way of purifying our faith, as Peter said earlier, making our faith more precious than gold that is tried and, uh, and purified by fire. So it's a different way of looking at things. Look, I remember somebody saying one time years ago that uh, I'd rather be going through trials and suffering in the will of God than going through those things outside the will of God being in the flesh. I'm not exempt from adversity and trials and heartache, but I'd rather be going through those things walking in the Spirit because then I know God's got a purpose in them than, you know, getting in the flesh, getting in the world, and then all these things come upon me. And I know it's not God, probably. It's just consequences for my sin. Well, back to 1 Peter 4, verse 17. He said, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. So this is our time right now with the world judging us in a sense, okay? And if it begins with us, first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, guys, if God allows his own children to experience suffering in the world for doing good right now, what will the eternal suffering be like for those who have made themselves his enemies and have lived to do evil in this life? Again, let me just paraphrase. Being a child of God doesn't exempt us from heartache or trials or even suffering, right? And God allows it because it purifies us, strengthens us, draws us closer to him, right? And a lot of it's done by the world against us because we are Christians. And God allows it because it's producing good things, Peter said and uh, James said, okay? Patience, perseverance, so on and so forth, all right? So if God allows us who are his kids, who he loves deeply to go through those kind of sufferings now, what is it going to be like for those who are not his children, who refuse to be his children, who live for evil, you know, for themselves? What is their suffering going to be like is Peter's where he's coming from and that's why as i've said before let me say it one more time some people we talk about how god lets his kids suffer in this life to grow them and strengthen them right we know that some people unbelievers primarily and carnal christians think that that's cruel that god would let his kids suffer i'm a parent i wouldn't let my kids suffer well if your child had a very serious disease that had a tumor and it was cancerous and was going to kill him or her, would you take that child to a doctor and a surgeon to have the tumor removed? Well, of course. Why? Well, I love my child. Well, it's going to hurt the child, though. They're going to suffer. Surgery is not easy. The aftermath, healing is hard. Why would you do that to your kid? Because I love them, but I know if I don't put them through that pain, they're never going to be healthy again. They're going to die. Bingo. Now you got it. God lets his kids go through things because he is strengthening us. He is making us more healthy, spiritually speaking. But let me just say this. A lot of times those very sufferings are what brings a person to Christ in the first place. And again, for those who think that's cruel for God to do that, let me ask you again this question. What is more cruel for God to allow somebody to suffer on this earth to bring them to Christ where they have eternity with him and joy forever? 
or to let them have a very pleasant, easy life where they don't really seek God because everything's going great and die and go to hell forever. Again, we have to see things, and I know you guys do, but you would be shocked to know how many Christians or those who call themselves Christians in America who don't think, they don't see things from a heavenly vantage point. I mean, as my pastor said many years ago, I've never forgotten it, if God has to make your life a little uncomfortable now to give you the best eternity he can, he'll do that. If he has to sacrifice some temporal comforts to give you eternal glory, he'll do that because the eternal is much more important in the eyes of God than the temporal. But as a carnal Christian, they don't think like that. They don't process like that. And it's all about God blessing them. That's why they became Christians. They were promised biggest house in, the, in town, nicest cars to drive, a successful business, and so on. That's why they came to Christ, because they were promised all that stuff. I'm not so sure, even though they prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, and whatever, that they really are Christians. I don't, I don't think you can become a Christian if that's your motivation. I, that's me. I could be wrong. I hope I am. I just think that if that's what brought you to Christ, you believe God's promised you all kinds of material blessings, and this is why you now signed up? Well, I don't know. Jesus talked about taking up a cross. And those that were unwilling to do that were not worthy to be called his disciples. I'm, I would be very uncomfortable if that was why I became a Christian. And I'm looking for the goodies all the time. And any adversity or trial come my way, I'm ready to rail against God because he, he's not being fair with me. He promised me all these blessings. No, he didn't. That goofy pastor or that TV evangelist, he promised you all that stuff. God didn't do it in his word. As one pastor put it, getting back to what Peter said, if God allows his kids to suffer right now, those who love him and do good, but he allows them to suffer because he's doing some good things, how much more are the ungodly going to suffer? And that's in hell forever. And one pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, Christians can rejoice that the sufferings they face in this life are the worst they will ever face throughout all eternity. We have seen the worst. Those who reject Jesus Christ have seen the best of life their eternal existence will ever see, end quote. And we talked about that, right? If you're a Christian, this is as bad as it's ever going to be. And if you're an unbeliever, this is as good as it's ever going to be. But then Peter adds this in verse 18. He said, now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? This takes us back to something Peter said to open up this epistle. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you turn there quickly. If the righteous one is scarcely saved. Hmm. Peter said in chapter 1, verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, who is a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, we have talked about this before, guys. Let me just touch on it again since Peter brings it up. The redemption of a human soul involved a price, listen, that no human being could pay. Turn to Psalm 49 real quick. Psalm 49. One of the key scriptures that comes into my mind when we talk about this. Psalm 49, starting with verse 7, where the psalmist said, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, 
for the redemption of their souls is costly. The redemption of a human soul is so costly that no amount of money can purchase it. It requires a blood payment, life for life. This is something God communicated to the first two people on the face of the earth, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in Genesis chapter 2. I'll just read it to you, verses 15 to 17. The Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every, every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So Adam and Eve had this beautiful garden, probably with thousands and thousands of fruit-bearing trees. They could eat of any of them. God says, You can't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I don't know how long it took before they ate from that tree. I don't think it was very long. Okay, uh, you know, as soon as God said, you got the whole, I don't know how big the Garden of Eden was, let's just say it was gigantic. God said, you can go anywhere, you get trees everywhere full of fruit, eat it, whatever you want, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat any fruit of that tree, you'll surely die. I can imagine right after God said that, Adam and Eve looked at each other and said to God, where, where is that tree? Where, where is that one, Lord? You know, that goes. But when they ate the fruit, right? Their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. They, were, they had shame. And so what they do, they tried to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, cover their shame. But God didn't accept that covering, did he? Instead, he killed two animals, two innocent animals, all right, and took their skins and covered Adam and Eve with the animal skins. Now, why? Because fig leaves don't cover as well as animal skins? Of course it does. But God was communicating a truth right up front. Now, when it comes to sin, you can never cover the shame of your sin through the works of your own hands. It would require a blood sacrifice, the innocent dying for the guilty. Is the idea God was communicating right up front, right up front. Now, under the old covenant, which was eventually established under Moses, God provided a sacrificial system whereby the blood of animals could be substituted for the guilty person to atone for their sin. God had one stipulation, and you guys know this, I'm just reviewing, but uh, one stipulation that God commanded with regard to the animal sacrifices offered to him was, th was that they had to be without what? Spot or blemish, right? We read in, in Leviticus 22, verse 21, and whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect uh, to be accepted there shall be no defect in it that's what god said in other words they couldn't offer god an animal that had any natural birth defect deformity or an animal that had maybe fallen down a ravine and got all cut up and lacerated or a wolf grabbed it and started chewing on it before the shepherd rescued it you couldn't offer to god anything that had spot or uh, blemish something that they that they acquired uh, later on the animal it had to be perfect and that was god's way of saying that you know it all pointed to jesus christ but you remember in hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 let me just say this let me back up even though god said i'm going to let animal blood atone for your sins cover temporarily is what it was couldn't take away sin i'm going to let the animal blood the sac die in your place and that will cover your sins and allow you and me to have fellowship now they knew because god basically told them that uh, these animals their blood would only temporarily cover or hide the sins of god's people uh, 
these animals couldn't remove the stain of sin from their souls. As the writer of the Hebrews explains in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That, that's the old covenant. Temporary covenant based on animal sacrifices, but even the Jewish people do. And the writer explains that. Look, if you read the book of Hebrews, at one point he says, look, you know as Jews that these animal sacrifices allowed you to have fellowship with God, but it never purged your consciences of the guilt of your sin. Because you knew that those, that blood of animals wasn't going to take away sin. It covered it. That's what it coughed to cover. But it didn't take away sin. So they always had this guilt as they approached God that they really weren't worthy. And they weren't. Of course, all of this pointed to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was without spot or blemish. In other words, Jesus was born without original sin. He was perfect. Virgin born, as we talked about Sunday, the sin of the Father didn't pass down to him, original sin, because he didn't have an earthly father. God was his father. And then he was, of course, uh, without uh, blemish. In other words, he lived his whole life without ever committing sin. That's why his blood, precious blood, could be shed for us, the innocent dying for the guilty, and uh, not only atone for our sins, but remove them once and for all. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, uh, John one twenty nine, John the Baptist said as he pointed to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Only the blood of Christ took away sin. Only the blood of Christ could purge the conscience of guilt. Yeah, we're not Jewish. We didn't live back then. We don't know the constant guilt they lived under. They were sinners. And the animals, okay, covered the sin, but didn't take it away. They were always guilty about that. Always weighed on their conscience. Until Jesus came, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, and with it, the guilt, the shame, and so on. Again, guys, the only ransom God would accept for the redemption of fallen sinners was the blood of his Son, Again, the innocent, sinless, dying for the guilty. I don't think most Christians, and we'll end with this, I don't think most Christians realize how great a work of God went into redemption. Now, we've talked about this before. I'm just going to touch on it. We'll close. We talk about the vastness of the universe, right? And, and there's different uh, estimates uh, how big the universe is in diameter. And um, the one I've heard... Uh, what was it now, uh, 18 trillion light years across. Now, a light year is the distance light travels in a year. Light travels at a rate of 186,000 miles per second. If you take all the seconds in a year and multiply them by that number, that's the distance light travels in a year. And if you want to know how big our deficit is, Understand that in a year, light travels 6 trillion miles at 186,000 miles per second. You think 186,000 miles a second for a whole year? 6 trillion miles. Our debt is 20 trillion. Now, you you maybe realize a little bit how large that debt is. That's a different sermon. But, okay. (laughs) We talk about the universe. It's gigantic. 
you know, 18 trillion light years across. Now, the Bible says God measures the universe with the span of his hand, thumb to little finger. So he's a very big God, isn't he? But um, it's, it's a spectacular thing to think about, the universe, the galaxies, and the stars. and just It's so vast, right? But as spectacular as the creation is, do you realize that only 31 verses in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, are devoted to the creation? 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 are devoted to something as vast as the creation of the universe. And the entire rest of the Bible is devoted to the subject of redemption. Every other verse after that speaks of redemption. The Bible tells us that creation was the work of God's fingers. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 8 verse 3? When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained. When I consider the universe, the work of your fingers, finger work, as big as it is, just a little finger work for God. However, when it came to redemption, the Bible says he bared his arms, or in other words, he rolled up his sleeves. That's where the real work began. That's where the real work began. The work of redemption, or as Paul the Apostle put it, the new creation was far more involved and from a human standpoint far more difficult to accomplish than was the original creation of the physical universe, right? In the creation of the physical universe, all God had to do was speak and everything came into existence. All he had to do was speak, the word of his power. Let there be light. Let there be, you know, stars and trees and land and, you know, all God had to do was speak, and everything came into existence. But when it came to the redemption of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human form, had to die. Had to die. Once again, God's word is very clear on this point. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22. Sometimes people ask, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, okay, we sin, we blow it. Why couldn't God just say, ah, I forgive you. Come on, let's just go forward. Because he's not like us. We can do that. We can overlook sin. We can sweep it under the carpet. It's not a big deal for us. When you're talking about a holy, absolutely holy God who cannot bear to look upon sin, God couldn't just sweep it under the rug. Someone had to pay for that sin. And that's why Jesus Christ had to die. We couldn't die for our sins. Sinners can't die for sinners. Had to be the innocent dying for the guilty. The whole book of Ruth, which we're going to get to one of these days, wonderful little book, is all about redemption. The, the kinsman redeemer who died for us had to be a kinsman, a near kinsman. Jesus had to become a man to die for men and women, right? All right, we'll just finish chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. In other words, the creator of the new covenant is the idea, right? The word commit there, guys, is a banking term. It means to deposit for safekeeping. Commit your souls. Deposit them with God for safekeeping. You think if you deposit something with God, it's going to be safe? I think so. I think so. 
When you accepted Christ, you in essence gave God your soul to keep. And he's never going to lose it. I'm a believer in eternal security. I could be wrong. I believe that when I committed my soul to Jesus Christ on the day I received the Lord as my Savior, the Lord took my soul, my eternal spirit, and he is keeping it safely. I'm going to blow it. I do. I, I, I'm going to sin. Not that I want to. But when I do, God is faithfully keeping my soul. He's not going to let me perish. He will chasten me. He will correct me. And by his grace, I, I will change and get better. But just because I'm weak, just because I still wrestle with sin, doesn't mean that I'm going to be lost. It's not like, well, let's see how well you do and how well you perform. And then if you die and you got enough good credits and good works, then I'll let you in. It doesn't work like that. The moment you receive Christ, you are in. Your name is written in the book of life. You have an inheritance in heaven that will never fade away. It's yours. Reserved until the day you die and enter into glory, right? One writer said, of course, when you deposit your life in God's bank, you always receive eternal dividends on your investment. I like that, all right? So God willing, next week we will, I believe we'll finish up First Peter chapter 5 and then get on to Second Peter. And man, are there some great lessons in Second Peter. A lot of end time stuff. And that's always interesting because we're in the end times. And um, we want to be prepared um, to live our lives in these days in a way that honors the Lord and well, just be what God wants us to be. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, hopefully who was our teacher tonight. We'll know that if people were blessed. If they were bored, then it was me. So I apologize, Lord. But uh, we just pray, Lord, that you will continue to give us a hunger for your word, a desire to dig out these truths for ourselves, that, Lord, your word would become to us a um, not only life and nourishment, but a soothing balm to put on our wounds as we live our lives in this fallen world. Give us grace, Lord, to not become bitter at those who persecute us. They're not our enemies. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Give us grace to love our enemies, to pray for them, to be a light to them, that they would come to you, Lord, and be saved. So, Lord, we ask you to continue to bless our study in this incredible epistle. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.